our children's church this time let's pray father we come in the lovely awesome name of our lord and savior jesus christ father we just thank you father we praise you for how great that you are lord now as we come to the message father most important part of our worship here father we thank you for everything that's happened thus far and we ask that you'd bless our pastor and bless your word your perfect word father as it goes out father i just pray you just uplift us lord and feed us that bread that we so need lord call and draw lost to yourself today lord through your word just bless our pastor lord give him the words and thoughts to say lord we thank you and we love you and we ask all this in jesus perfect and precious name amen amen We don't. He he is good to us. And even the word great, as great as it is doesn't even seem to scratch 
the surface, does it? Amen. Well, let me invite you this morning to turn God's Word, your copy of it, to Mark chapter number 3. As we continue our journey through uh, the gospel according to Mark. Um, Before we read the text, I think it's important that I set the stage that when you study Scripture, one of the guiding principles in studying Scripture is authorial intent. That is, the reader should seek to understand what the author's original intent was and what it was meant to the original readers and then make applications from there. And in order to do that, uh, a person must look at what the author says because what he says matters, the content of the text, but also the style of the text matters how the author says what he actually says. And I say that because we're going to be introduced this morning to a style uh, that Mark is very, very accustomed to. Uh, We'll see it in other places throughout this, this letter. And the only fancy theological term I can come up with to describe it is a sandwich. Um... Because what he does is he offers us several different types of theological sandwiches throughout the book of Mark. And what I mean by that is he starts with one story and then in the middle of that story he breaks away to a second story and then he comes back to the original story and completes it. And sometimes we are... Uh, tempted just to take the beginning and the end and bring it together and then isolate the the meat of the sandwich, but it all goes together. Um, Just for an example, in in, in Mark 11, Jesus comes to a fig tree, and in verses 12 and 14, he curses the fig tree. But in verses 15 and 19, he moves to the temple and he cleanses out the temple. And then from verses 20 and 25... He returns to the fig tree, and the fig tree has withered away. Um, The point of the passage, the sandwich, is what happens in the middle. The fig tree is not the nation of Israel per se, but the fig tree is the Jews' religious system that has withered away, that has dried up, that is no longer effective because of what Christ came to do. You see that in the middle story. Well, you also get a glimpse of that in Mark 5. Jairus comes to Jesus to come heal his sick daughter. Jesus leaves to go with Jairus to his house. But on the way, we find a story of a woman who has the issue of blood, who presses through the crowd, touches the hem of his garment, and is healed. And then after she's healed, Jesus then goes to Jairus' house where his daughter has died, and Jesus raises her from the dead. Um, all of that fits together, although it looks like one story that's interrupted by another story. It's actually one, what I would call, Mark Sandwich. Well, we get a Mark Sandwich today because Jesus is going. the text is going to start out talking about Jesus' family. And then it's going to discuss the scribes. And then it's going to turn back to focusing on Jesus' family once more. And so let's begin reading this morning. In Mark chapter 3, verse number 
20, and we'll read through the remainder of the chapter. Scripture says, Then he, that's Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they said to him, and, or sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the will of God, or this is the word of God, and the will of God too. So, we value family in our culture. Whose boy are you? I've been asked more than one occasion, and if they don't know who my dad is or my mom is, I usually tell them that I'm Judge Williams' grandson. And that usually gets the conversation going. Uh, and I can track my family lineage to about Papa Raleigh on, on dad's side and, and Papa Jean on, on mom's side and Papa Bob, Mama Rosie, the Arnett's and, and all of those. And when you tell someone, one of your uh, patriarchs, or you tell someone your grandparents and they smile and nod their head, you know you made a connection. Because our identity and our culture, a large part, is summed up in who our family is. Um, and our culture is somewhat fascinated by lineage, by heritage. If you were to go to Google and just type in Ancestry Search, it would result in 119 million different pages you could go to to search out your ancestry. You could find out where you came from, so they say. Um, I've never yet given my credit card information and all that stuff to be able to trace my roots all the way back. But, uh, but we, those sites exist because people value their family. They value their heritage. And the such was much the same in the first century in Jesus' time. People very much valued their family. In fact, many people's names were given to them, and attached to their name was another name that told everyone who their parents were. Simon Bar-Jonas means Simon, son of Jonas. A little later in Mark, in Mark 9, Jesus is going to heal a blind man, 
And his name, as he is called, is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus probably is not his given name. It's a title. It means son of Timaeus. So whoever read this letter from Mark probably knew who Timaeus was. And they knew he had a blind son and that Jesus had cured and healed his blind son. James and John, uh, just to differentiate them from other people who had those common names, are referred to as the sons of Zebedee. Joseph, the man who married Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, is called the son of Heli. And all through the gospel, people value their heritage. Jews take great pride in saying that Abraham is our father. David is our father. And so on and on throughout the New Testament, family matters. Family is value. But in our text, we find something strange. We find, well, something interesting, that Jesus did have an earthly family. This is a testament to his humanity. Um, Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, married. And from their marriage, uh, siblings were born to Jesus. He had brothers. We know from Mark chapter 6 that he had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Those were the four earthly, physical half-brothers of Jesus. And then he also had sisters, plural. That means more than one. So Jesus had an earthly family. But what is interesting about this text is that we see how his earthly family responded to him. We see here how his earthly family reacts to Jesus. And really, what this text shows us is that you could be in Jesus' physical family and not be in his real family. You could be related to Jesus, have the same mother as Jesus, and not still really be in the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's happening in the text is this. We know from Mark 3, 7 through 12, that a great crowd has gathered to follow Jesus. And they're gathering because he has cast out devils, he has healed the sick, and they think that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person and the power of Jesus Christ. And it had, but just not in the way that they had envisioned it. And the crowd was so large that Jesus goes up to a mountain to escape them. And there, Mark tells us, he appoints the 12 apostles. After that, He then comes back down and he returns home. And as we've seen before, Jesus could not just get a casual day of rest at the house because the crowd follows him wherever he goes. Jesus goes to his house. The crowd is so large on the inside, people are standing on the outside. And then his family arrive. And when his family arrives, they have a purpose in mind. They come with an agenda. And it is shocking what their agenda is. They hear the crowd is gathered. They hear that they have come to Jesus again. And verse 21 says that they went out to seize him. That is, his family goes out to seize Jesus. The word seize there means to bind him. It means to control him. It means to put a stop to him. In a sense, it means that they go 
to Jesus' house to shut him up. Now, it could be that they caught wind of what's going on in Mark 3, 7. In Mark 3, 7, we see opposition to Jesus growing. The Pharisees and the Herodians are meeting to take counsel how to destroy Jesus. And it could have been that the family said, we've got to stop him or they're going to kill him, so let's go to protect him. But that's not why they went. His family didn't come to stop him, to get him out, to protect him. They have a different reason. And look what the reason is in verse 21. Here's what they're saying. He is out of his mind. Now let that sink in. Let that resonate. Here are Jesus' brothers, sisters, his family, who know him best, who watched him live out his life, who were closer to him than anybody else has ever been to him, and yet they say what to him? They say he is crazy. He is out of his mind. They accuse him of being deranged. They accuse him of losing his marbles. They think he's got a psychological problem. And so here we see a marvelous scripture that the immediate family of Jesus was guilty of unbelief. As a matter of fact, do you know that none of his siblings believed in him until after the resurrection from the dead? And do you know what it took for them to believe? A personal appearance from Jesus after he had been resurrected from the dead. And so here, Jesus' family responds to Jesus. And we're shocked because they respond in unbelief. But the second movement of the text, we see that the scribes respond to Jesus. Now, while we are somewhat shocked by Jesus' family response to Jesus... We're not so shocked that the scribes don't believe in Jesus, but what might shock us is the depths of their unbelief, is the accusations that they make against Jesus. Here's the first accusation that they make in verse 22. It said the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. All right, here's accusation number one against Jesus. He's a possessed man. And he is possessed by Beelzebul. That is, uh, Beelzebul simply means the prince of Baal. Um, the prince of uh, d- the demons, so to speak. Do you remember in the Old Testament? There seemed to be one rival of God that, that, goes from the, the, that, that runs through the Old Testament. And it is the false god of Baal. You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel in the showdown with the prophets of, of Baal? Uh, Who was it that uh, Ahab and Jezebel, that wicked royal duo, worshipped and led Israel to worship? Led them to worship Baal, the Canaanite god. Well, uh, they are accusing Jesus here of being possessed by that god, of being possessed by Beelzebul. And so they're saying that what Jesus is doing is, is working on behalf of Satan. Now let that sink in. The scribes were those who were supposed to read scripture, know scripture, and to write out scripture. They were very familiar with scripture. And this well-versed group of people looked at the perfect 
sinless, omnipotent Son of God at what He was doing. And you know what they saw? They didn't see Jesus. They saw Satan. And so the first accusation is that he is possessed. But then there's a second accusation they make, and it is this, that by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. First was a slander against his person, and now there's a slander against his ministry, and here's what they're saying. Not only is he possessed by Beelzebub, but also the power that is working behind Jesus is the power of demons. What they're saying is, everything he does has the thumbprint of the demonic. What they're saying is, the power that causes him to act and to move is straight from the pits of hell itself. Isn't it interesting? Jesus' family looks at Jesus and they say he's got a psychological problem. He's crazy. The scribes look at Jesus and say he's got a spiritual problem. He is Satan. But now there is a shift in the text beginning in verse 23. And what we find beginning in verse 23 is we find that Jesus is going to respond to those who have responded to him and he's going to respond to them based on how they responded to him. Now he begins here in verse 23 and Jesus responds to the scribes. Verse 23. And he called them to him, that is the scribes, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, how does Jesus respond to the scribes? Well, first he responds with logic. I mean, it's just cold, hard logic. And what's the logic? The logic is, if you are right, if I am possessed by the devil, and if I am working the works of the devil, then what we have here is a spiritual civil war in hell. What we have here is the kingdom of Satan divided against the kingdom of Satan, fighting against the kingdom of Satan, and you ought to rejoice because no kingdom that's divided against itself is going to be able to stand. Now, is that what's going on here? Furthermore, think of the logic of this. Why would the one who came to kill, steal, and destroy cast out demons when they're killing, stealing, and destroying? It just makes no sense. And so Jesus first responds to the scribes with with logic, basically telling them, if I am who you say I am and I'm doing what you say I'm doing through the power you say I'm doing it with, then that means that hell is battling hell and it's soon going to be destroyed. But then Jesus moves to verse 27 and in verse 27 he gives us an explanation here. Now he's going to tell us what's really going on. He he. He showed the fallacy of their logic, but now he's going to tell them what's happening. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now what is this parable about? What is he saying here? Well, Jesus is saying this. Make no mistake. There is a war going on. 
But it is not a civil war between Satan's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. No, that's not what's happening. What's happening is not a civil war. What's happening is a divine invasion into Satan's territory. Now, think of the elements of this parable. You have a strong man. You have the strong man's house. You have someone who breaks into the strong man's house and then binds the strong man, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. That's exactly what's going on in the book of Mark. Think of it this way. The strong man's house is the world. It's this present evil age. The strong man is Satan. Scripture tells us he is the little God of this age. But who is the one who binds the strong man? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we see Jesus do more of in Mark than we see in any other gospel account? We see him casting out devils, casting out demons. And with each exorcism, what Jesus is saying is, I came not to fight against Satan on behalf of Satan. I came from another kingdom. I'm an outsider. I've broken into his domain. And I am binding him. And I'm going to plunder his goods and do as I will. Make no mistake. What you see is not the works of a demon-possessed man. What you view are not the works of a demon-powered ministry. No. When Jesus heals the sick and when Jesus cast out the devil, He is demonstrating that Satan is powerless in the presence of the kingdom of God. When Jesus silences the devils and He tells them don't speak and they can't speak, He is demonstrating that the powers of Satan are speechless in the presence of the kingdom of God. Oh, make no mistake, there is not a civil war from hell going on on the earth. No, there is a divine invasion from heaven that is taking place and the kingdom of God is moving forward in the power and in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan cannot do one thing to stop it. He is being bound. Now, that's the explanation. But Jesus adds to the explanation. And in verse 28 and 30, he gives a warning. And this is a bone-chilling warning that has caused much angst and much worry throughout the centuries. Because Jesus here looks at the scribes and listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, this warning is given because of the depth and the nature of the scribe's unbelief. It is given because of not just mere unbelief, but because of what they are accusing Jesus of being and what they are accusing Jesus of doing. Now, as a pastor, I cannot tell you how many times I've had people ask me from different congregations and uh, across the country uh, to explain what this unpardonable sin is. And most people who want to know what it is are concerned that they may have 
committed it. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. If you are concerned that you've committed the sin, you've not committed the sin. <laughs> Trust me, you have not committed this particular sin. Um, but what is this sin? The one sin Jesus says you cannot be forgiven for. Well, let's just think about what it's not. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain, although a person dare not take the Lord's name in vain. That is a horrible sin, but that's not what it is. It's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not even blasphemy. Do you remember when Paul gives his testimony in 1 Timothy 1? What did he say about his former life? He was a what? A blasphemer. But yet he obtained mercy as an example for all of us. And furthermore, it's not a sin that you commit through an act of impulse. I mean, it's not one thing you get up on a Monday morning and you're going through your routine and oops, all of a sudden you, you, you commit blaspheming of the Holy Spirit and now you're lost forever and you're hell bound and there's nothing anybody can ever do to change it. That's not what it is. Um, but what is it? I would argue that it was a particular sin for a particular time committed by a particular people because of the depths of their unbelief. Now think of it. It is a sin that was committed with full knowledge of Jesus. Who is it that Jesus warns about the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is it the prostitutes and the drunkards and the sinners? No. Who is it? It's the scribes. Why the scribes? Well, the scribes have greater knowledge than everybody else. They know the Old Testament like the back of their hands. They know the prophecies. They know what God has said. And yet, they reject Jesus. And yet, they say no to Jesus. And it's not a sin of impulse or a single act, so to speak, but it is an ongoing disposition of the heart whereby those people with full knowledge of who Jesus was and is beholds the miraculous power of Christ and His kingdom and they verbally attribute His work and ministry to Satan, not to the Holy Spirit. That's the danger. Therein is the danger, beloved. It is metastatic unbelief. That has spread to their minds. They don't think clearly. It's spread to their wills. They resist Him. It's spread to their hearts. They, they will not believe in Him. Listen, a person who were to commit this sin had reached such a point and been so infected by unbelief in their heart and in their mind and in their will that that person will, willingly, rebelliously, and eternally rejects the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a sin of impulse. It is not a, oops, I've done this. It is not, I may have done it 10 years ago and, 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 and you know, that'd be bad to get to heaven, think you're going to heaven and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit back then and then you're out. That's not what it is. No, no. It is to behold the works of Jesus Christ. I think while he was on the earth and then... Not just behold it, but to oppose it and attribute to Satan the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he explains why this sin was so terrible, what they committed in verse 30. For, that's a purpose, they, that is the scribes, were saying, He has an unclean 
Spirit. Do you see how he explains what it is who's in danger of, of committing this particular sin? So Jesus responds to the scribes, and he does so somewhat harshly because of their unbelief, because of what they accuse him of and the Holy Spirit of. But then we see that Jesus responds to his family. Jesus is inside the house with a group of people. His family hears about it. And his family comes down to him. And notice what happens in verse 31. It says that they are standing outside and they sent to him and called him. That is, they can't get in. So they fetch somebody to go in and fetch Jesus to come out to them. Go get him and bring him out here to us. Okay? And look what happens. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. It's clear from this that Jesus' family and the boy that fetched him and many in the house believe that his family has authority over him. Do you you see the way they're demanding? Hey, your mom and dad or your mom and brothers, they're outside. Get out there to them. They've called for you. You Go. They think they can tell Jesus what to do and what not to do. Now, they're seeking to control Jesus. We know that because what did they do in verse 21? What was their purpose in coming to the house? To seize him. That is to control him. To bind him. They want to do with Jesus what Jesus is doing with Satan. They want to bind him and control him and stop him. And so Jesus says to them, well, who are my brothers and sisters? He responds with a question. Now, at this point, the people in the house are probably starting to think, maybe his family knows what they're talking about. I mean, there's his brothers, his, his family out there, and they're saying he's crazy, and we tell them they're out there, and then Jesus asks us the question, well, who is my mother and my brothers? Has he gone senile? Has he forgotten who his family is? Why has he asked this question? Well, what, basically what Jesus is saying, he's not asking them, who are my blood relatives? He's asking them, who's my real family? Who are they? And then he doesn't give them a chance to answer because he answers it for them. Scripture says, and looking about at those who sat around, around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What does this mean? Well, Jesus is telling us his true family is not based on DNA. It's not based on fleshly linkage. It is based not on physical attributes, but it is based on spiritual faith. That to be in His true family, you must be connected to Him, not through Mary physically, but you must be connected to Him through God by faith. That's how you become a member of the family of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive them, to them he gave the power to become what? The children of God who were born. What's this? Born into the family, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. That means that we become a member of the family of God, not by blood. Just because mama and papa and mom and dad were Christians don't make you a member of the family of God. God has no grandkids. You're either a child or you're not in His family. We're not born into His family by blood, nor of the will of the flesh. 
It is not just something that the flesh conjures up and decides to do. And it's not even the will of man that decides whether or not we're in the family of God. It is of God. God births us into His family. And we are birthed into His family by faith. Now watch this closely. See how Jesus turns this scene upside down on His head. At the house, His earthly family is standing on the outside acting as if they are Lord of Him on the inside. But He's on the inside with His real family, those whom He is truly Lord over. It's those who were closest to Him are now on the outside, while those who were the farthest from Him are now on the inside with Him. What's the difference? The difference is faith. The difference is Belief. The difference is one group believed and they were a part of his real family and the other group did not believe and they weren't although they were a part of his physical family. Now what are we to make of this text? Well I want to draw three observations out of the text. Some I hope will be an encouragement to you uh, because I think it's encouragement it encouraged my heart but but also to warn others as well. The first observation I see in dealing with Jesus' family is this. Reaching your earthly family can be difficult. Wouldn't you agree? Why is it that the people we know the best and we love the most are the most difficult for us to reach with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it could be because they know us better than everybody else. (laughs) They know our warts. (laughs) They've seen us on bad days, okay? And that might make it difficult. But get this. Jesus' family didn't believe in him. And he was perfect. Could you imagine growing up in the household with Jesus? Mary, Judas, why'd you come in past curfew? I was late, I'm sorry. Jesus never come in past curfew. Yeah, Mom, I guess he's just perfect, ain't he? Can you imagine that going on in Mary's house? The only problem is, he is perfect. Not one mistake. Not one letdown. Not once did he lose his temper and fly off the handle and say something that he ought not to have said. Perfect. And yet, although they viewed him and saw him as perfect, they did not believe until after the resurrection from the dead. To me, it encourages my heart. Because think about it. If you follow Jesus and you love Jesus, you look around at your family and some of them are still in unbelief, and, and you feel like a failure sometimes, don't you? You think, boy, if I could just reach them, uh, if I could just share the gospel with them, why aren't they saved? Is it with me, or what's, what's the problem? For some reason, and we're going to see a little bit later in Mark 6, Jesus is going to say, listen, a prophet's not without honor except in his own country. There's something about a familiarity that, that, that seems to build resistance. So I would encourage you by saying this, don't take heart, or don't, don't, don't become discouraged. Um, if you have family members and friends and co-workers, those who you are close to, that it seems hard to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, just keep living it before them and keep sharing the gospel with them and trust God to do what only He can do, and that is to save individuals and convert individuals. So, So I see from this that it is difficult to reach those who are closest to us. But, but secondly, I also see this. You don't boss Jesus around. Isn't that what his earthly family's trying to do? They go to the house, 
They can't get in. They go in there and get him, bring him out here to me. They go in there. And the person says, hey, your mother and brothers are out there. You better go. Basically, Jesus is saying, they have no authority over me. They're not going to boss me around. And it wasn't an act of rebellion of Jesus to say that. Jesus is not some rebel who has a problem with authority. That's not why he says that. He's saying that to prove a point. And the point is this. I am the Lord of all. I don't take orders from anyone. I am the one who gives the orders and people submit to my orders. That's what he's saying. And to me, there is in Christendom today movements and sections and factions where it, it really irks me because they think they, they can boss God around and tell Him what He's going to do and when He's going to do it and how He's going to do it. True story. I was sitting in a church, not in Kentucky, but I was sitting in a church service. I was invited to preach, and a guy stood up and took uh, some prayer requests, and people were asking to, you know, for the Lord to heal this and touch this one and touch that one. Somebody had cancer, and, and, and the person behind the pulpit said, okay, here's what the Bible says, and he opens it up to Matthew 18, 19. And he reads these words. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's all he read. He didn't read the verses preceding that where it talked about church discipline or the verse after that where it talks about church discipline. He just plucked that out. That's why, that's why you have to read Scripture in its context, beloved. <laughs> a text without a context will be used for a proof text if you're not careful. And so he goes on and he says this. We've had these requests. I am going to ask God to heal every one of them. How many of you agree with me? Raise your hand. A bunch of people raised their hand. And he said, now look around you. Are there more than two or three agreeing? Folks are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll never forget what he said. It sent cold chills up my spine. He said, see, we have more than two or three agreeing. We've held up to our end. Now let's come and hold God to his word. Now I wanted to slam the pulpit on his head. I really did. Um, I, I really thought about not shaking his hand after service. I thought, how can you be a brother and make a statement like that? Why would he make such a claim? What's it, why does that even bother me? Well, it bothers me because prayer is not us bossing Jesus around. Prayer is not us telling Jesus, you've got to heal this one and you've got to move this one or you're not keeping your word. Beloved, the stars will fall from heaven before he ceases to keep his word. The ocean will surpass its shoreline before God ever allows one of his words to go unfulfilled. We don't hold his foot to the fire. We don't boss him around. We are not Lord he is Lord. Beloved, oh, the arrogance and the pride that infiltrates our hearts when we think we can just call God on the carpet and demand that He do what we want Him to do. Beloved, we don't boss Him around. Do you know the ones who boss Him around? They're the ones who are on the outside. Not the ones who are on the inside. But thirdly, and this is crucial I see that you can be close to Jesus 
and still missing. Still missing. There's one word that sums up this passage. It's unbelief. You see it in two different areas. You see it first in his physical family, and you see it in the scribes. And what is so, what is so weighty about the unbelief is that both groups come from two different angles. Their unbelief flows from two different streams. His family is in unbelief, although they have seen the perfection of Jesus. They know Him better than anyone else. They have been around Him more than anyone else. They have beheld His life, and yet they behold His life and still don't believe. They're guilty of unbelief. That is one stream through which unbelief flows. But then you have the scribes. The scribes' unbelief flows through a stream of full knowledge from the Old Testament. They've read Isaiah 53. They have read Isaiah 6. They've read the prophecies. They've read the promises. And yet when they look to Jesus and the one who fulfills them all is standing right in front of them, they accuse Him of being the devil. They don't just don't believe. They make those wild hellish accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ. And these were the scholars of the day. These were the well-trained of the day. These were the ones Jesus looked at in John 5, and he says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life? Well, these are they that testify of me. In other words, if you love the Old Testament, you'll love me. If you know the Old Testament, you'll believe in me because the Old Testament screams... Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And yet here are two groups of people who are close to Jesus, close to Scripture, and yet they are still in unbelief. I think in the Bible Belt, in McGoffin County, in eastern Kentucky, we have more people in this category than in any other. They're close, so close. We have unbelievers who respect the Bible. They respect the Ten Commandments. They want to live by the Ten Commandments. But yet they don't believe in Jesus. We have unbelievers who, if you were to watch the morals of their life, they're more moral than many churchgoers. And yet, they're so far away from Jesus because they are still in unbelief. They've heard the gospel. They can tell you the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and He was raised again the third day. And they can tell it convincingly. And yet they're still in unbelief. You see, you can be saturated with the gospel story. You can be saturated with church. You can, you can go to church every time the door is open. And you can be familiar with Jesus. And still not be in His family. And still be lost. And still be on the inside without Him rather than on the inside with Him. Let me ask you something. How many times have you heard the gospel and you still don't believe? How many times have you been to church throughout your life and you still don't believe? How many songs have you heard the saints sing? How many invitations have you set through? Beloved, listen, there is a danger There is a danger in becoming comfortable in the presence 
of the gospel. Because you can make the same mistake Jesus' physical family made and think that proximity to Jesus equates being in the family of Jesus. And it doesn't. It doesn't. You know the only thing, the only thing that ushers us into the family of Jesus? What was Jesus' response? When he said, who are my brothers and my mothers? My mother and my brothers? He said, here are my mother and my brothers. And he pointed at the crowd that was inside with him. He said, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what is the will of God? What is the work of God? What is this that welcomes us and ushers us into the family of God and births us into the family of God? But Jesus tells us in John 6, this is the work of God. Make no mistake about it. Write it down. Put it on the wall. You can write it in stone. This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He sent. The only way you can be a member of the family of God is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. So here's my question for you. In eternity, which group will you be in? Will you be in the group that is standing on the outside with Jesus on the inside, assuming that you're in his family just because of some physical connection? Or will you be on the inside with him? The only way you can be on the inside with him is by trusting in him by believing in Him, and by confessing Him as your Lord and as your Savior. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. I'm going to ask you to do it now. I'm going to ask you to believe. I'm going to ask you to trust in Jesus. I'm going to ask you to move in the house. I'm going to ask you to not trust being close to Jesus, but actually trust knowing Jesus through faith and faith alone. That, my beloved, is the only way any of us are welcome into the family of God. I'm asking you to come inside to where Jesus is by faith. Let's pray. Father,